0: Welcome to the FDF podcast, passionate about food and drink.
1: Hello and welcome to the Food and Drink Federation podcast. I'm Nikki Hunt, Membership Commercial and Sustainability Director, and today I'm joined by our Chief Executive, Ian Wright. He's our all-round industry guru and frequent star of Wake Up to Money, BBC News, Sky and many, many others, and now the FDF podcast. Good afternoon, Ian. Hello. Hi, so in this podcast normally Ian gives an overview of the big industry issues for the day and uh, talks about things that are happening in the food and drink sector but today we're going to be doing something a bit different Ian Um, I refer to this as Ian in the psychiatrist chair and although I'm not a psychiatrist I can't say that we've borrowed the chair Um, what we're going to do is just explore some of the things that have got you to to where you are today Um, the sort of successes uh, failures, of which I hope there are not too many, and also your thoughts for the um, the future of the sector and also what you're going to be doing after you leave us at the end of the year. Um, so I think to kick off, what I'd like to ask about is, uh, I believe at university you studied um, history and your thesis was on slavery, is that right? Uh,
0: well, I did do history, yes. I think my specialist subjects were more... Um, beer and parties but um, <laughs> I I couldn't honestly say that I, I did do a I did do what we called in those days a long essay on yeah. uh, the British and North America 1450 to 1650 and I did that because I was under the impression that because there were only nine material voyages from uh, the from Britain to the New World over that time, it ought to have been relatively easy to pass. In fact, it's an extremely complicated period. But a, the reason it talks about slavery is that um, in in those days, in fourteen fifty, from fourteen fifty onwards, and particularly after the colonies began to be established on the um, East Coast of the United States, there were there was actually no distinction. Uh, in, in terms of race, uh, when people were transported to the New World. In fact, what happened was that, uh, rather like with the press gang in the Navy, uh, in, in um, getting people to uh, provide the workforce for the Navy, where, where gangs went out and basically kidnapped young men, mostly, to work on ships. That's what they did to get people to go to work in the colonies, which was mostly plantation work. And of course, the people they were press-ganging in, in the UK or in Britain, were all um, white males. And it was only later that the that the res- re- kind of revelation dawned on them that white males weren't very good from Europe, weren't very good at uh, surviving malaria and all the dreadful diseases that were to be found in the swamp-ridden east coast of the United States or southern United States, and. It was after that that they realised that uh, African native, native African uh, people were much better at surviving those conditions because those, in many cases, particularly on the uh, in the sort of Niger region, were the ones they lived in.
1: Mm. Yeah. So essentially, you you picked the subject to uh, to look for an easy life. Is that right?
0: I, I no, I picked it Sorry. in order to be stimulated and to make a contribution to the learning of the time. So, broadly, yes, you're right. Yeah. So,
1: you sound like you were actually destined for a career in academia, research, that sort of thing. So, yeah. what was your thinking in getting into the, the food and drink sector? How, how you ended up
0: with us? Well, there was, there was absolutely no way I was going to be an academic, <laughs>
1: um,
0: except, except the kind of academic that um, appeared in that uh, television series and book, The History Man, Malcolm Bradbury's The History Man. I, I I wasn't I wasn't actually cut out for that kind of study. I mean I didn't find it particularly stimulating, and I I wasn't I wasn't that interested in in some of the ways in which history was taught at university. I was much more interested in in kind of contemporary politics and got very heavily involved in politics. Um First of all, uh, well, it very, very early on with the Liberal Party in the 1970s. Then, uh, so I was very, I was actually active in the 1974 elections, uh, which seems like an awfully long time ago. <laughs> um, and then uh, after that at university, more with the Fabians, who were the sort of Labour club of, of the university at Cambridge, and I ended up as chair of the Fabians and then as president of the uh, Student Union. Uh, and I then went into politics full time. I was a supporter of the, the then very new SDP uh, and I was one of its very early staff members in a very junior capacity, working for Roy Jenkins, David Owen, Shirley Williams and Bill Rogers. Uh, And then I did that for about four or five years. Then I got into, made a sort of move across to public relations and worked for various consultancies, ending up running one in Birmingham in the early 1990s. Uh, And that was where I first began to be involved in the food and drink industry with clients in the industry. And then I went to Boots the Chemists uh, in an in-house role in 1994. And, you know, in those days, Boots was a food and drink retailer, amongst other things. Obviously, a major pharmacy retailer was its primary function, but it was also a, a food and drink retailer. And when I was there, Boots the Chemist was the largest seller of sandwiches in the world. And um, it, it, as we used to say in a rather pompous way, we owned the lunchtime occasion uh, a franchise which unaccountably they've given away over the last 20 years. But, but that's how I first got into food and drink.
1: Fascinating. I, to be honest, some of those things I never actually knew about you, even though I've worked with you for a few years. And so along the way, you must probably have picked up an awful lot of advice. What would you say would be the, the best piece of careers advice you've ever had?
0: Oh, I think you've got to do something that you want to do and that you believe in. Uh, and I think you've, you, you absolutely shouldn't assume that the first thing you do is going to be the right thing to do. Um, I'd also say that at different times in your life, you, you, you want to do different things and I, I've changed jobs quite frequently and, and in sharp contrast to my dad. Um, my dad, um, was a builder and, uh, a bricklayer actually, and, uh, who became a a building site manager and did the same job for the same company for over 40 years. And indeed, he was so um, uh, set in the job and so important to the company that when it went into administration or receivership in those days, the receiver kept him on uh, to close the business down. And he literally and rather sadly put the lights out on his only real adult employer. Uh, and I've always thought that, that that is a story of enormous dedication and loyalty. And a man. he was a man of enormous attention to detail and, and absolutely loved what he did. But it did rather demonstrate that uh, staying with one company for the whole of your career may not be the best thing to do. So I've rather done the different thing and, and moved around a fair bit, although normally... Normally I've stayed somewhere between... I've stayed 14 years in my last job and by the time I leave this one I should have been here for seven years. So I think that's that's not an unreasonable term to uh, to, to do.
1: No, no. So what's you obviously mentioned that you, you've been here longer than you expected to be um, and obviously there's been some fairly main major change projects at FDF over the last few years. What drives you on on a daily basis?
0: Well, I, I, I think to be honest... I genuinely started uh, this job with not any very clear view of what I wanted to achieve in terms of specifics. But I remember when I was being interviewed, I uh, I talked to a friend in the village I live in in the East Midlands, um, who a guy called Nigel Parrott, who will be quite well known to some of the some listeners. He was the Uh, marketing director, I think, or marketing manager, who helped start the Covent Garden Soup Company many years ago. And he now gives very successfully, gives advice and takes investment stakes in uh, food startups. He's a very inspiring figure, actually, and a very towering figure, a very, very tall man and with a great presence. And Nigel, I asked Nigel what he thought of the Food and Drink Federation of FDF. And he said, oh, he said, it could be so good. And I rather thought that that was quite a good ambition to make it that good. And so in a sense, that that's really been the, the kind of main ambition I've had. I, I, I got the very clear picture that it had untapped potential. Mm-hmm. And we kind of formalised that um, as the ambition of being the most uh, respected and effective business representative body in UK industry. Uh, as our ambition, the, the, the um, then executive committee, now the board and the president's committee agreed that ambition six and a half years ago. Um, and I think we've we're on our way to achieving that. And that's what really drives me. How do I make this organisation the best thing it can be for our member companies?
1: Yeah. And I think on a number of occasions, you said that when you walked into FDF, you nearly walked straight back out the door again. Um <laughs> Has there ever been a case where you've actually looked at something and thought, "I just can't do this"?
0: Um, well, I mean, I think there are obviously things that are simply impossible to do, uh, but I don't think I've ever thought that there's anything that FDF might reasonably ex- be expected to do that we that we couldn't do. And I, I'm I'm one of those people who who. I genuinely believe that John Lennon was right when he said that the world belongs to optimists, that pessimists are just spectators. And I I truly do think that if you're in business, you're bound to be an optimist, or at least if you run a successful business, you have to be an optimist. But you have to be like Harold Wilson, the former Labour prime minister, rather brilliantly said. He said, I'm an optimist, but I'm an optimist who wears a raincoat. And I think that's that kind of sums up my approach. I do think that that yeah. I, when you people say he or she has a can-do attitude, uh, I think that sometimes people get that wrong. I just think I think there's probably a chance that you you can achieve almost everything you want to, and you'll never know if you could have achieved it if you don't have a go. But you've mm-hmm. got to have a go with a sense of purpose and a plan. That seems to me to be the key thing. You can't just run at things pell-mell. But if you've got a plan, I think you have a pretty good chance of succeeding, yeah.
1: Yeah. I must admit, I've never noticed the raincoat. I'll have to keep an eye out for that when I'm next in the office. Um, sort of Personally speaking, have, have you ever felt there's, um, in your career, the sort of the one that got away, the, the role that you ever really wanted that you don't think you've you fulfilled?
0: Um, not really. I think... I mean, I've been very lucky a couple of times. I've had sort of narrow escapes. I'm very, very nearly in the mid-noughties. In fact, actually, um, I could tell you the day. I I nearly went to work for um, Royal Bank of Scotland, RBS, and for um, Fred the Shred. And I I went up there for an interview. And I, um, Sir Fred Goodwin, who, of course... uh, some, I think this was about about a year after this happened. I he um, the, the bank crashed, but I went in two thousand and seven. I actually went up on the sixth of July, um, or was it maybe the fifth of July, thousand and seven? And I know that the date's right because uh, we had to meet in their new headquarters close to Edinburgh Airport rather than at their rather splendid headquarters in the centre of Edinburgh because it was that, that building was besieged by climate change protesters who went on to surround Glen Eagles when the G7 was there. And I know that this was the day before I think or the day after we uh, we got word that London had won the 2012 Olympics. But it was also the day before, so it was the 6th of the 7th. It was the day before the London bombings. And uh, I, I have a very sort of clear memory of meeting Sir Fred and having a long conversation with him and just knowing that this was the wrong move for me, that I, I, he and I would just not work together. And that would have been a massive step up for me at that stage. Uh, but I just remember thinking this is the wrong move and n- I've never had any regrets about not doing it but but it it's the one that I'm very glad I didn't do if I put it mm. that way
1: yes yeah and and for you what does success look like either sort of personally or professionally sort of how, how do you know you got to the point where you're saying sort of that that's it I've done what I've came to achieve um time to move on
0: well, I don't think you ever. I I'd certainly no far at no point in my career have I ever got to the point where I thought that's it, job done. Uh, I didn't do that at Diageo, which was my previous role, which I absolutely loved, and I haven't done it here. I, I think, I think the reason I'm, I think it's time to go, is that first of all, we've we've got to what might be an inflection point in many of the things we're doing. So. We're, we're obviously very heavily engaged in work for our members uh, on the implications of the EU exit and on the, uh, the way in which uh, the, the recovery out of COVID is working. And both of those are coming to a point where they're not over by any manner of means, but they are moving to a, to a situation where they are part of the everyday fabric of doing business rather than crisis management. And I think that is a good point for someone else to take on the leadership of the FDF team. And I also think that it's important that you, you, you know when to go. And I mean, I'm sure I could stay another two, three, four years, but I'm not sure I would know necessarily when the best time to go would be. And it seems to me that this... This is a good moment to have someone new come in, someone almost certainly younger um, with a different background. And uh, to give both my wonderful team here and the members and probably uh, the, the media a bit of a rest from the gobby Sod being has been in charge of FDF so far for the last <laughs> seven sure. years. and have somebody a bit quieter and a bit more perhaps a bit quieter or a bit more considered um, taking the tiller and and charting the course forward.
1: (laughs) I think the programme planners are going to be scratching around for things to put on their schedule actually when when you move on. Um, A few few personal questions Um, and actually in a similar sort of vein if you're prepared to admit to it what would you say has been your biggest career blooper? Is there any time that you ever look back and thought, oh, my goodness, why did I do that?
0: Well, I did. There was one job that I, uh, two jobs, actually, in quick succession that I I didn't, where I didn't do the right thing. Uh, one in the mid-1980s, when PR, and I was a PR person in those days, when PR was at, was really expanding incredibly fast, people's ability to advance their careers was almost always in significant Significantly ahead of their talent, and I, I got a job working for a business called Chillmark, and I was working for a a, a very successful uh, woman who had started this business. But she was very eccentric, and she was also quite tough on her staff. And I, I became the sort of meat in the sandwich between the uh, <laughs> her and her staff, and that was a bit uncomfortable. But I knew the moment to come had the moment to leave had come when um, in a meeting with a very down to earth potential client a yorkshire lady she uh, she said um, my boss said to this yorkshire lady we've met before and the yorkshire lady said uh, oh no love i don't think we have I, I don't think so yes we have met before oh well you meet so many people don't you perhaps it were perhaps it were at one of those women of the year lunches oh no said my boss i don't mean in this life <laughs> And to have that happen in a pitch was um, a pretty fixing moment. And, and there are only three things you can do there. You can turn to your boss and say, I'm really sorry, you are insane. Um, <laughs> you could, you can, um, You can look guilty or you can do what I rather cowardly did and just carry on as though you hadn't heard it and hope that the other party thinks it was a mistake or thinks what they heard was a mistake. and um, But I decided that was the moment to go, and I went pretty quickly after that.
1: <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> to be honest, I don't think anything that you could have uh, ever said in any of your speeches, Ian, could possibly compare with someone turning around and saying that. That's, uh, that's quite bizarre. No. Um, one thing you're, you're really good at, and I think we all... Uh, an one thing. Uh, no, one thing in particular you're really good at is... Public speaking, I think from sort of uh, um, our events team's point of view, I think your dream to work within the fact that you don't require lots of briefing, lots of prepping, you don't need to be told, you know, when to walk on, when to stand, that that sort of thing. How do you prepare? Do do you ever prepare? I mean, you sort of come out with anecdotes, with stories, with facts, figures. Is it natural or or do you have to spend some quiet time preparing that, you know, those of us that, um, you know, sort of working on things don't actually see you do?
0: well a few of those figures are actually accurate so you know getting those is quite important um mm. i i i was going to i could be glib but actually the simple truth is that i'm i spend all my time thinking about this stuff and mm. so uh i think it may not look like there's a lot of preparation going on and there's probably not a lot of specific preparation going on but but all of My whole business uh, existence is preparation for all of these activities, I think. And you try and take in as much information as you can. I'm not somebody who's particularly good at listening specifically to receive information. I'm much better at picking things up as I go along and letting it uh, kind of marinate in my head until it comes out in hopefully the right order. Um, and and I think I think it's I think it's important to to try and play to your strengths. So one of the things that I can't do, I've never been able to do, and I do extremely badly, is read speeches. Um, and, and so I'll do an enormous amount to not have to read something uh, because I find it deeply distracting to have to continuously look down and follow a script. And this this ended up being an almost desa- Almost a disaster when I went to speak some years ago to the NFU annual conference uh, at uh, the international. Uh, sorry, at the the yeah the international convention centre in Birmingham, and you know big fig- big feather in our caps to get asked to speak at the NFU. No no FDF person had been asked before, and my mate Terry Jones, the uh, former FDF distinguished FDF. Uh, uh, employee who's now the chief executive of the NFU very kindly asked me to speak so I was I went along to speak and I I, I got a very good speech which had been written for me and I uh, I had read it a couple of times because I was nervous about doing it from the script and it was felt important that I should do it from the script and I checked out the way in which the stage would be organized but for various reasons I didn't get to rehearse on stage because the Secretary of State uh, was on before me, the the then deaf Secretary. And so I I was sat in the front row of the audience while she spoke, and then I was called up to the stage. And I hadn't actually gone to look at the podium. And it was only as I got onto the stage, I realised that the podium wasn't actually a proper podium. It was a prop. And it was a prop so that the Secretary of State and the... Mary Raymond, the NFU president, could use it to hold on to while they were reading the auto cue. But of course, nobody had told me that, so my speech wasn't on the auto cue, with the absolutely clear implication that I wasn't going to be able to read it at all. I wouldn't be able to see it, um, and so I had to basically wing it and make it up as I went along, with as best I could, remembering the the, the good bits from the speech. And it was nearly a disaster. But fortunately, the audience was very uh, forgiving. And I told a couple of jokes, which went down extremely well. Um, One very lucky one, one, which was extraordinary profanity about badgers, uh, which are subject (laughs) to great contention. And there was this man in a badger suit outside. And of course, farmers are very... They're they're very conflicted on badgers, and this was at the time of the badger cult. And um, I started my speech desperate for a way of getting them all on side by saying, I dot, 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 hate badgers. And I got (laughs) standing ovation for that, and afterwards I could have more or less said anything to them and they'd have applauded. (laughs) (laughs) Just going
1: back to a word that you used um, in your answer there, actually, nervous. Do, do you ever get nervous? It never looks like you do, but please tell me. Occasionally, you do get nervous.
0: Uh, not necessarily about those sorts of occasions. I'm mm. apprehensive, and I believe you know. I'm I'm very well aware on all these occasions that I'm not speaking free and right. I'm speaking for for the FDF, or sometimes for the food industry. Mm. Um. So I wouldn't say I get nervous on those sorts of occasions. I, I do occasionally. I do. I do think about things quite a lot in advance of them, but I don't. I don't remember an occasion when I was particularly, you know, not in. So I think you have to be reasonably sensitive to the fact that people want you know they want to see you at your best and they want you to do well but they also expect something from you so meeting an audience's expectations is very important to me you've got to treat them with respect and I suppose I I suppose it's that feeling I have going to do these sorts of things rather than than um, kind of uh, stage fright I don't think I have a pretty I pretty much, though this will go wrong on some occasion and then it will never go right again, but I, I don't worry too much about the words. I think the words will come as long as you've thought about what it is that you want to say. But sometimes I have no idea what I'm going to say um, until a few minutes before, but that's why I quite like to sit in the audience for, or sit and listen to the previous speakers because you you get a sense of what's happening and then you can pick up on themes that the audience likes and you can develop things that are in your own experience and i think that's what people listening to you really want to hear they don't want to hear a, uh, I, 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 I well i don't want to hear anyway somebody droning on about with a speech that that somebody else has written for them i want to hear the person and what they really think mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, you you do a lot of speeches, you do a lot of um, events, lots of dinners, that sort of thing. And I think um, from our point of view, I I wonder where the heck you get your energy from. And whatever you eat, drink or whatever, I think we, we all want a dose of that. How do you keep up those energy levels when you're you're constantly talking, you're constantly in front of people, you're constantly representing FDF in the sector?
0: Well, it's very nice of you to say that. I mean, I find illegal drugs are very helpful, um, and I think.
1: <laughs> oh dear. I,
0: I think. Uh, well, I think the truth is the truth is that that I have, I have two answers to this. One is I do have a lot of energy for meeting people, for talking to them. Uh, my mum was a chatterbox, and my dad was indefatigable in his ability to keep going for hours and hours and hours at work and I just have both of those traits linked up um the second thing is that I'm doing something I absolutely love doing so why wouldn't I be energetic in its prosecution and the third thing is and this sounds sanctimonious in the extreme but um about what 13 years ago I had cancer and there was a not not badly but I had it and there was a there were a couple of days where because I mistakenly read something that I absolutely shouldn't have done um and because I'd misunderstood it because I'm absolutely useless at science I thought I was going to die and I went well I was you know and I said to the doctor um am I going to die and he said yes but not of this and, uh, and I did. And this fantastic guy called Ben Kennedy uh, treated me and, and sorted it all out. And actually, it was in the end an extremely bizarrely and extremely pleasant experience. Um, but it completely changed the way I thought about my life in the sense that I just realised you haven't got time. We haven't got time to sort of faff about so if you're going to do some you might as well try and in in the sort of Saul Bellow phrase seize the day and uh, I've tried to do that ever since and it, it it's become second nature now.
1: Yeah on, on a sort of similar sort of vein and sort of how you think about your life when you, you've had that sort of event happen um, Will you ever retire? I mean, obviously, no, no. no, I I must admit, I don't think any of us can ever see you just pottering around the garden and uh, you know, sort of wandering up the high street and and that sort of thing.
0: I Um, do potter around the garden. I do, I do potter around the garden. I do, I do garden. I like gardening. I like being outside. I like, uh, I like the fact that you put something in a pot or you put something in the ground. You water it. You look after it. And six months, three, six months later, it grows. Or it, you know, there's a set of potatoes there, or a, or a um, or carrots or whatever it is. I, I do like that. I like all of that. But I, I most of all, I just like meeting people and being with people and the interplay of conversation and ideas and gossip. And you know, I like all of I like all of that. And I think, in a way, when when Dr. Johnson said. When someone's tired of London, they're tired of life. I think what he meant was when they, when they're tired of the conversational interplay and social discourse, then they're tired of life. And that certainly would apply to me. I just, I just love all of that, and I, 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 I like doing it with a purpose. I suppose is the is the real point, and and so I can't quite see the point of of stopping all of that.
1: Mm. Yeah, there'll be a niche for you somewhere. You can tell us about that in due course. I think there'll be a follow-up podcast for that. Um, Ian, when was the last holiday you took? Proper holiday?
0: Well, I'm not very good at holidays. Um, I think the last the last holiday I took. I mean, we 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 have a we're very lucky. We're very very lucky because um, Diaggio is extremely generous over the years to me. Uh, as indeed, of course, the FDF is from a much uh, in a much different set of circumstances because it's members money. I said quickly. Um, But so I've got a house in Suffolk uh, at the beach at Southwold, and we go there a lot. Indeed, we were there over the most recent bank holiday. So, I mean, every day is a holiday when you're there, even if you're working, because you're only literally, I don't know, two minutes literally from both the beach and the best pub in the country, the Lord Nelson. Uh, and both of those are incredibly restful and wonderful places to recharge. So, I think the most the the, the last time we actually physically went away on holiday was on my sixtieth for my sixtieth birthday when we took the Orient Express from Venice to Paris. And funnily enough, in about a month's time, we're not repeating that trip, but we're taking a ten-day train trip. Around uh, the west coast of Scotland, uh, which will be fantastic. We we would go to more far flung places, but because my wife has a quite a significant ear problem, she can't fly. Um, so, foreign holidays that don't involve going somewhere on a train have been rather uh, out of the question for the last six or seven years.
1: Yes, yeah. Final question: What would your friends say your best qualities?
0: I know that's a difficult one to answer for yourself, but over the years. Wouldn't, short, some, they surely wouldn't say they, <laughs> they wouldn't mention any qualities. They would uh they would, as I just said earlier, they would say, oh god, he's gobby. Um
1: <laughs> yeah, I think that's probably indisputable, but yeah. <laughs> uh you
0: know, never use one word where 73 will do. Um I don't know what they'd say. I mean, I I I think. I know what I'd like them to say. What I'd like them to say is that I'm kind. I think it's the most underrated quality uh, known to man or woman. I think kindness is, is just something that we've neglected as a race and as a, as a planet for far too long. And I think simple kindness and courtesy... And courtesy really is kindness in manners. I, I, I think are the most important qualities anyone can have, and I think that's you know the, that's the best way to add to the sum of human happiness.
1: I don't think we we disagree, at FDF. At the risk of uh, inflating your ego, I think you probably got it spot on. Um, I think. On that note, we will call an end to this. It's been absolutely fascinating talking to you, talking about things other than business. And uh, hopefully we weren't too probing or I'll pick my P45 up on the way up. Um, Thank you very much, Ian. And uh, please join us next time for the Food and Drink Federation podcast. Thank you for listening to this FDF podcast. FDF
0: is the voice of the food and drink industry, supporting our members with the expertise to develop, grow and strengthen their business. To learn more about how we can help your business, contact us at members.enquiries at fdf.org.uk. There's no better time to become an FDF member.